You know, every time I speak, I want the truth to come out. You know what I'm saying? Every time I speak, I want to shiver. You know, I don't want them to be like, they know what I'm going to say because it's polite. They know what I'm going to say. And even if I get in trouble, you know what I'm saying? That ain't that what we're supposed to do. It's, I'm not saying I'm going to rule the world or I'm going to change the world, but I guarantee that I will spark the, the, the brain that will change the world. Anybody know who Willie Lynch was? Anybody? Raise your hand. He was a vicious slave owner in the West Indies. The slave masters in the colony of Virginia were having trouble controlling their slaves, so they sent for Mr. Lynch to teach them his methods. Keep the slave physically strong, but psychologically weak and dependent on the slave master. Keep the body, take the mind. I and every other professor on this campus are here to help you to find, take back, and keep your righteous mind. I am your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates, and welcome to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. We are the return of intelligent radio as we ensure the free flow of opinions and push the envelope on the questions America's afraid to ask in the mainstream media. Good morning to all the truth seekers out there. I have a returning guest, uh, Queen Casey Benning. Thank you, Queen, for being with us. I'm glad to have you, you back on the yeah, glad to have you back on the Dialogue talk show. We are a year removed from having you um, on the show, um, highlighting this. I, wanted, I said I wanted to bring you back a year later, highlight some of the work you've been doing over the past year. Again, glad to have you back. But if you will, Queen, say hello to the truth seekers out there. Give them a little bit of your background before I give them this morning's discussion question. Go ahead, Queen. Thanks again for being with us. Sure. Thank you for having me. Good morning, everybody. My name is Casey Manning. I am just a, a public servant. I am a community servant um, that is focused on our youth, on our children, uh, just to ensure that they have a voice um, and that they are they're also taught agency of their own voice and that there's somebody to advocate for them along that path. But um, I, I came here in 98 from Virginia Beach, Virginia, to attend the historic and legendary Morris Brown College. I have a degree in sociology, um, and most of my professional career has been in nonprofit as well, um, even before I co-founded uh, the nonprofit that I lead, Helping Empower Youth with uh, Mark K.B. Boyd. So I'm just excited to be a part of this beautiful city um, with all the things that we can talk about and wish were different. Um, there's still no place like Atlanta. And so I'm just excited about the opportunity to sow something back into the city through the work we do with young people um, and hopefully be able to give back so much that has been given to me. No, I love it. I really, really adore and appreciate the work that you and Katie Boyd are doing with, as you say, helping empower youth or hey, as sometimes it is referred to. And wanted to definitely highlight again some of that work that you've been doing over the past year. And you kind of jumped into, as you say, a public servant. You're taking that full fledged as you're now running for a uh, District 7 school mm-hmm. board here in the Atlanta area. And so you're yeah. taking your, again, uh, all your service in a sense to the youth, and now you want to apply it to the school board. So we definitely want to get into uh, some of that this morning as we get into this morning's discussion question. What about the politics of education and black boys? 
What about the politics of education and black boys? And subtitled is is Water Boys Revisited. So as I mentioned, I had you on a year ago, and at that time we were discussing something that in a sense become that became a prominent issue here in the city of Atlanta. Uh, and, and the question a year ago was, what about the water boys? And so. A lot of people were having a lot of dialogue. I was having dialogues with people in the street running into the water boys. And, and I was like to kind of just highlight that to a degree, there's always been youth here in Atlanta and probably other cities as well, where from time to time, their hustle is hustling water, you know, at the intersection. So not anything necessarily new to the city. However, a year ago, after the pandemic and school being shut down, we in a sense had a groundswell of boys, in a sense, getting, you know, on the corner selling water. And in a sense, they became known as the water boys. And you, yourself, and um, your co-founder of Hey, Mark K.D. Boy, ended up interacting in a very unique way. And eventually, um, those same water boys, if you will, uh, they came under scrutiny in the city. And they said, even the mayor was like, you know what, they might be becoming a nuisance. And we might want to Figure out, figure out what we want to do with these boys and yourself and KD, y'all end up playing a big role. So uh, before we get into uh, this morning's actual discussion question, what about the politics and education of black boys? I wanted to highlight again, I brought you back to revisit some of the aspects of last year's show. So if you could just highlight how that interaction started and kind of what you ended up getting into. Again, you already had a nonprofit, but the water boys ended up being integrated in some of what you were already doing from what I understand. But if you could just highlight that briefly before we get into the the gist of this morning's discussion question. Sure. Sure. Um, I think you set it up perfectly. A um, lot of it was just organic. Uh, Our organization had been up and running for uh, about 10 years um, when we first encountered uh, some of the young men that we've been working very closely with and uh, the pandemic, like you said, kind of shuttered all of our plans uh, for last school year in terms of wanting to be back into the school building, um, serving and being able to support. And uh, we were trying to figure out what our next step would be as well, just like everybody else. We saw so many things shut down that served not just children but families, um, those who are underserved, those who are challenged by unaffordable housing. And we as an organization also had to figure out where's our pivot point. Do we fall back as well and just lean on the fact that we are in a health crisis, that we're in a pandemic, and let that be enough, right? Because people who chose that, they're right. Like, you know, we have to do our part, whatever that looks like and feels right for each of our our own moral compass. We have to do our part um, when it comes to this. But anyway, we would travel back and forth down a particular street, and that was north side, right there at the intersection of Ivan Allen, if you're going kind of northeast, um, or uh, what we still call Old Simpson Road, Joseph E. Boone. And it was right there at the intersection that we kept seeing the same group of young men. And at that time, it was about 20 to 25 of them. And um, there was no plan to do and become what what we did and who we became, uh, it was just us being authentic to who we are as individuals and the DNA of our organization. We wanted these children to be safe. And so we stopped and we gave them some masks and some gloves and some trash bags, and we encouraged them to at least keep the space that you're in clean. 
And we would keep stopping to make sure they had what they needed. They eventually recognized our cars and our truck, and they would begin to flag us down. And we decided that instead of pulling back, um, clearly they're out here for a reason. Let's learn their story. And so we began to build some trust with them um, so that they could really share the why beyond just trying to get money. Um, And we learned so much about them. And we realized that what they were doing was not wrong. Now, there was a safer way that it needed to be done, right? And there were some things that they needed to learn as well to keep themselves safe and to be able to brand themselves correctly through customer service. But inherently, what they were trying to accomplish was not wrong. And so we set up shop. We got bullhorns and folding chairs and reflective vests, and we got shifts of adults to come out there, and we would supervise them as they were on the corners. Um, But what happened is that there was a lot of push and pull from the city, from Atlanta uh, Police Department. And uh, I spent a lot of time talking to lieutenants and sergeants and captains of uh, various zones, and then the ordinance came down from the mayor's office that uh, the selling of water was unpermitted, uh, which meant that it was illegal. So then this this thing that these young people have been doing in the city of Atlanta for over two decades had now become criminalized. And we just thought that was incredibly unfair. And so while we continued the day-to-day work of helping to build up these young folks, Um, we also had to then advocate for them at the city level um, to ensure that they were not um, unnecessarily uh, bothered (laughs) um, by law enforcement or by those who wanted to be aggressive in in terms of getting them off the streets. And so we got them plugged into the work that we had already been doing. We use a STEM-based curriculum um, to teach character development and leadership skills. If you're not familiar with the curriculum of STEM, you know, we hear it a lot and we think technology and coding and robotics and that kind of thing, but the engineering design process breaks down how you critically think. You ask questions, you research what available information is to you, right? You form a hypothesis, you test it, then you reevaluate. It's the same thing we do every time we make a decision. We've just been conditioned, right, to do it without understanding what the steps are. And we broke those steps down for them so that they could then begin applying that to all areas of their life. And so they got plugged into that program. Um, what is what is uh, a misnomer is that they never dubbed themselves the Water Boys. That is a name we gave them, and then they embraced it because that's how everybody kept referring to them. So our boys are more genius than we think that they are, right? Well, instead of me trying to figure out what to call myself or explain to you really what I want to do, I'm just going to give you something real quick so we can move past this so you can make this, this exchange of business, right, product, service, and fees. And so, but they never dubbed themselves the Water Boys. They embraced it after the adults started calling them that. And so, for the young men that we have, uh, they decided that if you're going to call us Water Boys, then that's what we're going to become. And they worked alongside us to co brand um, and co create their own brand of water called Hey Hydrate. And we are now in a brick and water store over in Kirkwood, Dom Bejo, the wine shop. Um, we worked with the Atlanta United Supporter Group, the surgeons. Um, we literally just dropped off 72 cases, about 1,700 bottles um, of water to their warehouse that they pass out to the folks who come to the Atlanta United game. Uh, Center for Civic Innovation has ordered uh, bulk water in order for them to give out to their various events as well. So I've been working with organizations, small businesses, um, to support, to show the boys 
that while there's nothing wrong for you getting out there and hustling, there is another way because we try best not to tell them that something is better. There's something different, and there's always another way um, to do what you're doing. And so we've been opening them up to that. So the program is still working. We're looking to expand um, and bring on other young men, but the challenge with that is also funding and making sure that we have enough adults to really engage these young people the way that we need to. And so we're hoping to develop some partnerships with the school system, with the city, um, as we move forward as well. No, I love it. Thank you for all of that backdrop. We're going to go to a short break, and when we come back from break, we're going to introduce our other guest, and we're going to get into this morning's discussion specifically. Um, again, just wanted to give that backdrop. We'll get back into the water boys a little later in the show. Now we want to get into the politics of education and black boys. So thank you so much, Casey, for that uh, background. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show, where all I ask is that you think. Have you heard about that podcast, Mental Dialogue? It's so good, it should be illegal. But if you miss the live show every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Blog Talk Radio, be sure to catch replays on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and all other streaming platforms. We are the return of intelligent radio, and we are the best in the world at having hard conversations on race, sex, gender, and business in the African-American community. And remember, all I ask is that you think. Are you trying to figure out your next income stream? Maybe get into cryptocurrency, real estate, or maybe even start your own business. If so, contact the KG Hire Company to receive a professional consultation or strategy session to provide you the advice you need to get a jump start on your new venture. If it's a new business, there's nothing like having a business consultant review your finances, strategy, or marketing. If it's real estate, the KG Hire Company specializes in evaluating deals for profitability and securing special financing for creative real estate acquisitions. If it's cryptocurrency, then look no further than the KG Hire Company to master the components of blockchain technology and investing into cryptocurrency. Serving Atlanta since 2016, the KG Hire Company is an industry leader in customer experience and getting your money's worth. Contact them at kghire.com or 833-544-9288. Again, that's 833-544-9288. That day, Mr. West became invisible. And so we began to go through the process of trying to identify what is it that causes young African-American males to disengage from school? What is it that they're experiencing? And we found out the number one factor contributing to disengagement is our young African-American males do not make the critical connection between education and their future financial well-being. In other words, how is this stuff you're teaching me in school going to get me paid? How is an A on a report card equal a $100 bill? Because I guarantee you one thing, that there are always two things on a child's mind who comes from poverty. And those two things are food and money. I'm hungry. I need to eat. I need money to buy some clothes. And if you can't tell me how education is going to get me one or the other or both, I may disengage. We went throughout the districts across the country, 
and we surveyed over 1,000 students, and we found out 68% of those students did not make that critical connection. Two different students show up in the classroom. One understands how pedagogy and education leads to future well-being, financial well-being. The other shows up and does not make the critical connection. The teacher disseminates pedagogy to both the same way. After a while, an education gap is imminent. We created a specialized curriculum that helped our young people make that critical connection. And as a result of doing that, we took a group of students from Sagan to Suits and from dropout to graduation. Because we began to understand the strategies in terms of what was necessary to make them make the critical connection. And so when you began to understand the, our young African-American males, it's not that they don't want to be educated. It's not that they can't comprehend. I'm sure you watched the movie straight up. Welcome back to the Mr. Dialogue Talk Show. I am your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates. This morning's discussion question, what about the politics of education in black boys? Water boys revisited. I have a couple of special guests. You just heard from Casey Vinning for the break. I now have on Oshun Ojo. How you doing, Queen? Thank you for being with us. If you will, Queen, give us a little bit of your background uh, very quickly so we can get into directly into this morning's discussion and the cut we just heard. But thank you for being with us, Queen. Osho? Oshun, I'm sorry? Oshun, are you on mute, possibly? Okay, maybe she hasn't gotten in yet. Okay, I'll do a Casey, we're going to have you rock out and respond to that. Um, um, actually, right. no, no, no problem. No problem. Um, yeah, Mia, have you respond I, um, to that? Uh-huh. I um, definitely agree with a lot of what um, was shared in that clip. And actually, a lot of it was part of a conversation that I had with um, a school leader over at uh, APS in the central office about why it's important, even in the midst of a pandemic, to bring services wraparound supports um, into the school to make it a little more accessible for students to understand that connection. You know, a lot of times we have people say, oh, the boys are so much different when they're with you than when they show up in school or even at home. And part of it is exactly what he said. They have learned to compartmentalize, oh, this is what it means to be here with, hey, this is what it means to be in my classroom. This is what it means to be, you know, with my, my family when, it's all really the same, but because we work so much in silos, uh, young people have not figured out how to connect all of those dots um, in order for them to understand that everything that they do and every environment that they're in plays a part to the goal that they have set for themselves and how they're going to achieve it. So I totally agree with him on that, that they have not figured out how does education put money in their pocket. The the small little bit that I, I don't necessarily like will rah-rah jump on board with is one thing that he insinuated and the second thing that he said. Um, education itself is not the achievement of a degree. Uh, I learned from a very wise man, um, and some people will never meet him, never know his name, but I say his name um, because I, I believe of the spiritual benefits of calling people's names, and his name is Gary Turner. And I remember him saying to me when I got my first nonprofit job, uh, my professional job, I was supposed to have a bachelor's degree and three years of experience. I had neither. 
but I was in the final two. And he told me that he hired me not having a degree and not having the uh, the, the uh, specific experience they had written on the form because all the degree proved was that I could start and finish something. And I had already proven that to him from the capacity that I was serving in at that organization. He was like, so education is necessary. Go and get it because it opens up doors for you, but the degree itself is not you being educated. And so it's important for us to understand that we have to teach children that the graduation is just the celebration of what it is that you have acquired that you are now going to apply to your life. The graduation itself is not the goal. And I know that may be some pushback for some folks, and it's a delicate balance, but we have to reposition and rethink how we do school and how we present school to students. The second thing that he said that I don't totally agree with is that he took things from sagging to suit. Um, because what we do when we tell children that how they show up, um, that it should be a better way, that it should be um, this way, then subconsciously tells him and tells that child that how they are and what they're doing right now is not correct. And we've been very intentional about making sure that we don't tell our boys that they are wrong. There may be some other behaviors that you can choose. Uh, there may be some other ways that you can respond. But who you are, that does not make you wrong. I'll give you a real quick, quick example about that sagging pants thing and how it escalates and how we continue to perpetuate some underlying um, thoughts and assumptions about our children. Uh, five of my boys participated in a program at Georgia Tech. Now, the program is just housed at Georgia Tech, so this is no slight on the school itself. One of the adult facilitators that was not connected to Georgia Tech uh, was trying to get one of my young men to uh, put his mask back on, right? When the pandemic, no problem, totally agree with the request and the ask because the young man was coughing. And he was trying to explain to him, I'm coughing because I have asthma and not because I'm sick. So instead of the adult coming to find me or one of my team members who's closer to that young man to be able to tell him in a different way, right, because we built relationship and trust, I could have gone to that young man and said, hey, look, I know you don't want to, but you don't have to, or you may have to leave the program, versus the interaction that occurred. So the adult left out of the room, and the young man, being playful, he's 15, comes out and says, hey, why are you acting like a girl? So I specifically asked, did he say girl or did he say something else? And the adult said, no, he said girl. I was like, okay, so why is the adult that you, did you feel antagonized and threatened? Because the adult's response to the young man was, you're calling me a girl, but you're the one sagging your pants out here advertising. And then all hell broke loose. And now we have this adult man in his late 40s with this 15-year-old boy going at it because he immediately knew that talking about that young man's pants and where they sat on his body was going to cause him to have an illicit uh, reaction and response. It was absolutely unnecessary. Boys have been sagging their pants now 30 years. It ain't going nowhere. So for us to keep bringing that point up before we can even get to what is in that young man's mind, then we're already taking five steps backward and we're making our job harder. Our young men do all the things that folks beg and demand of them on their own because we never told them that they had to do X, Y, and Z. We presented to them 
how you can get better results and then let them make the decision. And when we as adults create and cultivate the environment for the rewards to come, I no longer have to tell them when they go to a certain place. They ask me, Miss Casey, do you have a belt that I can put on? They'll say, oh, let me check my language because of the environment in. But I have never said to them, don't curse. Don't use the N-word. Don't pull your pants up. I present the opportunity, show them the rewards and the benefits, and then let them make the choice. And so as adults, we got to get our ego out the way and stop feeling like I tell you what to do, and then if you do it, then I reward you. No, our job as adults is to create the environment, show them the benefit and the reward, and then let these young people make the decision for themselves. Well, Queen, that's why you do what you do, and you do it so well. Because at the end of the day, um, I always what you're talking about, I call it is a simple way of what you just explained. I love the example is I call it time and place. Um, I work with children after school as well, a lot younger than the ones you work with now, but I've worked with all ages over the years. And I always, in a sense, because you're exactly right about how we look at this thing. When I go to an organization and I've heard some groups do this and they brag about that their kids don't sag their pants. All I think to myself is you're not reaching those kids. They're just acting right in front of you, um, you know, just because of the moment. And some people, like, again, I feel you on this pushback because at the end of the day, teach them time and place. Time and place meaning let them be themselves, but when there's a benefit to you to, in a sense, dress appropriately, if you teach them that, they can understand that versus you, as you say, starting out with something that's going to make you as like, like you gave with that example. Now that adult man and that 15 year old, they can't have communication because now it's went to a place that it doesn't need to go. So I love that example. We actually got Oshun Ojo on now. How you doing queen? Wanted to get you in on in the middle of this discussion. Um, if you will, uh, just give a short background so we can keep this thing going. You on with um, Casey Benning. Um, she's our special guest as well. So glad to have you on, Queen. I know you got tied up this morning, so glad to have you. But if you will, say hello to the Truth Seekers and give a quick background. Yes. Um, I came in just in time. I'm, I'm in love with the sister. We have to connect after this show. Um, love your fire. Love your passion. I completely agree with everything that you said. Um, my name is Oshun Cornelius Ojo. Um I don't know what you want. Um, I, I'm a lifelong community activist. I'm a mother, a wife, um, tech geek, um, and I'm just um, here to, to learn and, and um, get in where I can fit in. No, absolutely. You spent time um, um, teaching me in, in, school, in school as well, if I recall, just throwing that out, because, again, I think that applies to this discussion. You don't have to give out much more than that, but I do want to highlight the fact that you spent time educating students as well, if I, if I recall correctly. I did. Um, I was I, I, a couple of things. Um, the first one is that I entered the private sector. Uh, we talked about this. Um, Amina and Koyo. Um, I came in and, and put my son into their private African-centered school, and then through them, I was able to have the opportunity to actually teach at the school. And I was I served as the um, the uh, STEM coordinator um, for the Uhuru Academy for many years. Um, and then secondary to that, I also do coding camps. I offer a free, a free coding camp. Uh, well, pre-COVID, I did a free coding camp for um, specifically for, for girls, for disadvantaged uh, brown girls in, um, in my city. No, absolutely. That had to be highlighted because, again, you're going to bring a wealth of experience to this morning's discussion, uh, which is what about the politics of education in black boys? 
Uh, we just she just dropped. We'll get her back on here in a quick second, hopefully. Um, everybody's on phone line, so we, sometimes we get through our technical difficulties just fine. But again, uh, Casey, love what you had to say. We got Oshun back on right now. So if you will, um, Oshun, we got you back on. Any thoughts? I know you yeah, said you were a but give me some from what you heard. Just give me some of your own thoughts in reference to um, just again the, the what you did here as we continue this morning's discussion. What about the politics of education and black boys? Um, I came in right at the point where the sister Casey was talking, and I'm sorry, it's Casey. What's her last name? Benning. Benning. Um, yeah, but Casey's I came fine. The point yeah, we, we our family here, so Casey's oh, okay. just fine. Okay, okay. I don't, I don't want to be disrespectful. You know, we not on, I don't know the sister, so we're not on a first name basis. I'm telling you, this is how we but... do it. We, we family. We ain't, we, ain't, we ain't formal like that. We try to get to it and have organic <laughs> conversations. So, yep, yep, Casey's just fine. Okay. Go ahead, please. But, yeah, um, I came in on, on the point of discussion where, where she was saying that there was a child, a grown man who was um, engaging um, uh, with a with a child um, in an inappropriate manner, and then, I, and then you guys talked about um, kind of uh, respectability politics, and I think that's huge um, in this discussion because the expectation for black children is that they um, they assimilate into a culture that's not their own, and then they are criminalized because that culture is not theirs. And I was having a discussion with a sister who is actually a um, an educator, lifelong educator in California, and she has a couple of programs, but she was saying that. She was saying that um, they have all these diversity and inclusion programs and all these other programs to, to target black children, but they're not effective because what they intend to do is to um, make the child assimilate and not meet the child where they are and respect their culture. Um, so I, I completely agree with that. I think that um, that also begs the question, um, how do we achieve that? And I don't – I we have how many hundreds of years of experience in public education? Uh, well, you know, public education in this country, um, not hundreds of years, but, and um, I think that it is, it is evident that um, the best way, not the only way, because public school, of course, you know, is necessary for, for us at this juncture, but um, we need to really start focusing on um, having independent schools where children are being loved on and taught by people who, who are from their community, who look like them, who talk like them, who understand where they're coming from, and who don't um, attempt, who have a social, a social and political awareness, and who, who people who don't attempt to uh, put them into boxes and to uh, push those, those um, respectability po- politics on them. No, I love it. We're actually up against the break. We're going to open up the phone lines for those that are out there, the number to get in on this morning's discussion. What about the politics of education and black boys? The number to get in is 646-787-1691. Again, that number is 646-787-1691. You do have to press 1 to let us know you want to speak. I'm going to play a little cut from one of my favorite artists, Joe Bleed, and then we'll hear another cut, and I'll get both of your opinions on this cut as we continue this morning's discussion. We'll be right back, but all I ask is that you think. I went from looking to work, punching the clock. I went from punching the clock to running the shop. I'm going to get it. 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 the way 
trade off. Get ready for the takeoff. Now every single day it feel like Ferris Bueller day off. I still feel the pressure like a game selling playoffs. But I'm hustling for my life, trying to make it to the payoff. And now I'm seeing that light. What mama said was so right. You do what you love to do. You won't work a day in your life. I made my mind up. I'm off the time clock. Cut my time up. Get that knob up. I just sold your back. You got me wound up. I'm done with all of that same old. I'm working all of my things. In September of 2019, a six-year-old student named Kaya was sitting in her school's office. Okay, she's going to have to come with us now. That's a police officer. This video comes from his body camera. At first, it seems like Kaya doesn't know what's happening. Earlier that day, Kaya had a tantrum. Three school employees said that she had kicked them. The school called the police, who arrested Kaya on charges of misdemeanor battery. The police dropped the charges. After Kaya's grandmother sent this video to the Orlando Sentinel. Kaya's case isn't an isolated incident. A five-year-old girl being handcuffed by police in Florida. For a year, he could not sleep alone. He um, put handcuffs on me. Tossed to the ground by a school resource officer. <laughs> what you're seeing are the effects of a larger problem in American schools. The U.S. doesn't treat all students equally. But if we wanted to, we could do something about that. The next president could decide if that happens. In 2016, researchers at Yale showed teachers this video clip of four preschool students. Their instructions, look for misbehavior and click when you see it. The study was kind of deceptive. None of the kids in the video actually misbehaved. The researchers were using eye tracking software. What they actually wanted to study was who the teachers were watching. Both black and white teachers spent significantly more time watching the black boy in the video. This study showed that even preschool teachers can treat kids differently based on their race without even realizing it. Look elsewhere in the U.S. school system, and you'll see this show up in other ways, like at this middle school in Bryan, Texas. They gave students tickets for offenses like disrupting class or using profanity. Black students were four times more likely than white students to receive those tickets. Nationwide, black boys miss way more school due to suspensions than any other group. And this can start a kind of chain reaction. Missing weeks of school due to suspensions makes students much more likely to drop out. Without a diploma, you're much less likely to earn a living wage and much more likely to be incarcerated. All this missing school is helping to drive the highest poverty and incarceration rates in the developed world. So it's worth Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates. This morning's discussion question, what about the politics of education and black boys? My special guest, Casey Benning, as well as Oshun Ojo. Uh, thank you, Queens, for being with me this morning as we hear a cut 
Um, a lot of things stood out to me, but um, you as just a special guest. I'll let y'all kind of lead off, Casey. Uh, your thoughts as you hear that cut, again, as we start really getting into the politics of education and, and our black boys, black children in general, obviously. Um, but, you know, we always kind of highlight that, just to throw this out real quick, uh, in current times, you constantly hear about, in a sense, how our black boys seem to be navigating through the educational system, uh, having a little more difficulty than even our sisters, if you will. So um, not to leave the sisters out, but just kind of pointing out why that focus. Um, your thoughts on that cut, if you will, Queen. Lord, I don't think there's enough time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, where do I want to start? Uh, I want to start with one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite movies, and that is Lean on Me when Morgan Freeman portrayed uh, Principal Joe Clark. And there's a line in the movie that says, if you treat them like animals, that's exactly how they'll behave. And I think of that when we think of the fact that school resource officers were initially designed and um, placed in schools to have kind of this byproduct of building better students and police relations, youth and police relations, right? And if you have someone in the school, then hopefully they'll learn how to work better with law enforcement when they may encounter them outside and in the community. Well, maybe well-intended, that is not what has happened. And so what we see a lot of is that school resource officers are used uh, to threaten students into good behavior, and it does not always work. Um, it is there to remind students that somebody is waiting for them to mess up. Somebody is there to ensure that uh, they are, uh, you know, disciplined to the fullest extent, depending on how egregious the offense is. And so the idea, even from that clip, and I remember that story, that someone would think that a five-year-old, boy or girl, is strong enough to hurt an adult from kicking, punching, slapping, whatever that child may or may not have done, but to pin that child down, face down, handcuff them, and to take them through this very traumatic experience, um, to me, is the total opposite of the types of environments that we're supposed to be creating for our children. Um, no, absolutely. I I'm sorry. Primarily, yeah, I work oh, no, I thought you were finished. Oh, no, no, no. I just ended with this point and then, um, you know, let Sister Shun get in. But there's 52,000 students in the Atlanta public school system. Uh, about 70 or so, a little bit over 70% of those students are African-American, not black and brown, like we try to clump everybody in together, but black students. About 72, if I'm not mistaken, percent of the 52,000 are black students. The suspension rate is 91%. 91% of all suspensions are black students. And of those 91%, about 84% of them are black boys. Which means to tell me that even in our school system, in a school system like APS, 
we still subconsciously, because a lot of this is not the things that we say with good politics out of our mouth and not the things that we say when we have time to craft responses, but what we wholeheartedly believe in our souls and in our spirits is what shows up in how we interact with people. How we interact with our young black boys is showing and telling that a lot of us still feel as though they are subhuman, they are superhuman, that they are violent in nature, and that who they be is criminal. And I said it how I wanted to because we have to understand the state of being um, is that who they are and who they be when they show up in those places is criminal. And so as soon as they do something out of pocket, it then goes to the very extreme. And so we alluded to it earlier. Yes, I am running for, for school board. Part of what is important for us to always highlight is that this zero tolerance policy is affecting our black boys tremendously and at an alarming rate. Now, there are some things I'll never make excuses for, and they need to be handled immediately and maybe to the fullest extent, depending on what it is. But a lot of these things that these young boys are doing don't require mm-hmm. that, and we've got to find that balance in the middle so that we're not creating school, which should be a safe place, as now another place that is trauma-informed, trauma-driven, and then also helps to perpetuate what the rest of the world is doing to them. No, absolutely. Uh, we've bought into the the paradigm that's been, in a sense, handed to us um, as African Americans as well, because those numbers are very alarming. Because you would hope, um, as you say, the majority of students in the APS system are African Americans, and something that we love to brag about, be Atlanta being a chocolate city, uh, you would hope to see better numbers. Since that, uh, from what I can tell, again, being an after-school program, so I'm not directly in the schools, but a lot of our schools do here in Atlanta do have African-American um, teachers and administrators and principals because when you get outside of the, the Atlantas of the world, uh, you will, you know, you, when I'm going to, black, for example, in my town, um, I'll go 12 years with no black teachers. You know what I mean? I had a couple of black administrators, but that's pretty normal outside of in Atlanta. So when you give us those numbers in Atlanta and see this in a sense similar to results, which you might see outside of Atlanta, that speaks to the very thing that you're talking about. Oshun, please go ahead and get it here, Queen. Wow, that, those clips were um, like I had a, a visceral um, response to it. I, I, I'm just, I'm just, I, I don't know. Um, I agree with a lot of the things that you guys said, but I, I think um, for me, and I know I'm a bit more radical, um, I, I, just to touch on the fact that uh, the police, uh, how how they began introducing these, these quote-unquote resource officers into school and what, what purpose they serve, but I really believe that the purpose was more malicious than that. Um, I believe that uh, we we have to inject the idea um, or the the fact of the prison pipeline and that um, the introduction of police into schools, particularly into black schools, because you'll find that resource officers were not necessary in white schools. They weren't necessary and they didn't have them. The white school in my in my um, town, they had a, a police officer patrolling to make sure the, the Negroes stayed out. But um, they didn't. Ha- we didn't. They didn't have a, a a an officer in school. The officer who was there was there for their protection, not to um, uh, gauge their behavior. Um, so what I'm saying is that I believe that that police policing was introduced into schools, and particularly into black schools, for the distinct pur- purpose of continuing the prison pipeline. Um, the number one predictor of a black boy who will spend his life in prison or who, who will go to prison is if he had contact with the police. 
um, if you were introduced into the black boy is introduced into um, the criminal justice system in the way. Can you hear me? Yes. Your phone is going in and out. Can you call right back in? You're definitely going in and out. Just so, just so, so we. Can. Oh, you know what? I turned off my Wi-Fi. Is that better? Um, yeah, I can hear you clear now. So maybe, yeah, yeah, we were okay. definitely going in and out. Yeah, when you were saying the number one indicator, you, you can start there if you okay, want. Okay, I said yes. The number one indicator of whether or not a black boy will go into the prison system is whether or not he had contact with the criminal justice system as a child. And um, I believe that they know that that, these, that, that stat is accurate, and they know um, that they uh, need to criminalize black boys early um, in life in order to maintain that prison uh, population. Um, so my, I, I submit that uh, police officers were introduced into the public school system specifically for the purpose of continuing the prison pipeline. That's first. Um, the second thing that we, that, we needed, that we talked about was that you talked about black teachers. And um, I touched on that earlier. I think it's really important that black students have uh, black teachers who look like them and, and whatever. But um, one of the things that you said is, um, is that children are going to school in majority black cities and still experiencing the exact same thing that they experience in white schools. And that is because of implicit bias and um, cultural um, conditioning of black people to view black boys, black children, black boys specifically in a certain way, and to view whiteness in a certain way. And so um, absent um, a complete overhaul of the way that we think culturally, the way we think politically, and also a complete overhaul of the way that we educate, because it's not just about discipline. It's also about the curriculum that they're learning, the approach to education. The whole thing is not just about the discipline um, um, in the school. I think the, the entire way that the thing is done is um, counterproductive and counterintuitive for black people. Um, but, yeah, yeah. So, um, no, I respect the, no, I respect the thoughts. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. We are up against the break, so I thought you – I was. Make okay. sure you were no, go ahead. I'm, All right, that, no, was, that was good. So let's go to a quick break and continue, continue this morning's discussion. For those that are out there on the phone lines, you have to press 1 if you would like to join our discussion this morning. If you're online, the number to get in is 646-787-1691. Again, that's 646-787-1691. We'd love to get your, all of your three cents on this morning's discussion. So please give us a call. We'll be right back. Well, all I ask is that you think. Hey, where did you get that hat and t-shirt? I like that. Oh, I got this at moneymotivation.com. It's fresh, right? Yes, and I love the message on it, too. You are the hustle, huh? That's what the shirt says. I am the hustle. They embody the entrepreneurial spirit, and what I like the most, it's more than a brand. It's a lifestyle for those who want to put in the work and expect to have the final things in life. I also follow them on Instagram. Check this post out. If you believe money is the root of all evil, you're using it wrong? Or how about this one? Excuses made zero dollars an hour. I like those. What's their IG? At moneymotivation.co. But do they have any ladies gear? Yes, you're going to love the clothing line they got for the ladies. Matter of fact, pull up their website, moneymotivation.com, and I'm going to get you a few things so we can both look like money. Everywhere I go, go. Everywhere I be, be. I don't even talk. In 1964, President Lyndon Johnson created a new federal office accountable to the president, the Office for Civil Rights. Its first task was to desegregate public schools in the South. 
But soon, they started noticing that some schools were segregating their students without actually calling it segregation. A lot of the black students would be labeled disabled and removed from the mainstream classroom. So they wound up segregated. Daniel Lawson studies school discipline. For years, he's been sounding the alarm about how much school black students are missing due to suspensions. The data he uses in his reports comes from the Office for Civil Rights. In the 1970s, they started requiring schools to report how many students they classified as disabled. Plus, suspensions and expulsions all broken down by race and gender. Over the next few decades, those numbers went up as more punitive ideas about discipline took hold in American schools. Well, in some schools. Gangs and drugs have taken over our streets and undermined our schools. The idea that if you don't, you know, throw the book at kids when they're young for every little thing that they're going to turn into criminals. Never any research to show that it actually worked. You never see that in schools serving mostly white kids. But in 2011, a new report out of Texas started to cast doubt on that approach. The study looked at discipline records for almost a million students. It tracked the same kids from seventh grade all the way through high school. The results were stunning. Nearly 60% of students had been suspended or expelled at least once. The study also showed that black students facing school discipline for the first time tended to get harsher punishments than white students. And the more disciplinary violations a student received, the more likely they were to drop out. Clearly, Texas had a big problem. The question now was if the problem was bigger than Texas. To figure that out, the Obama administration turned to the data set that the Office for Civil Rights had built. That's how they learned this was a nationwide problem. African-American students are over three times more likely than their white peers to be suspended or expelled often for very similar offenses. They also discovered that the vast majority of suspensions were for behaviors like talking back, using profanity, or violating the dress code. Nonviolent student behaviors, many of which once meant a phone call home. Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates. This morning's discussion question, what about the politics of education in black boys? Special guest Casey Benning, as well as Oshun Ojo. Thank both of you queens for being with me this morning. Again, another cut to kick off uh, your thoughts as we're kind of just walking through uh, education. As you kind of hear the Obama administration and and the rights, the Civil Rights Office, and it was started uh, by President Lyndon B. Johnson back in the 1960s. And so you kind of start seeing that intertwining of politics and education. However, we're listening to uh, kind of the results that you, Oshun, have kind of continued to speak to. And I know why you are an advocate, advocate for, in a sense, when, whenever possible, pulling our kids out of the school system. Because, again, when you hear the backdrop of when that office was started, and then Obama takes that same office and says, hey, here's a nationwide problem. Our, our black kids and black boys, if you will, are being pushed out of school, and we see the the results of that later in life, and there's maybe probably hasn't been a lot to change it. So um, if you will, Oshun, I'll kind of let you kick off your thoughts as you hear that and go to you, Casey, afterwards. Go ahead, Queen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you and I spoke about this, and I think it, 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 um, it, it fits the conversation because they're talking about the history and different administrations and what they did. And 
I was in um, Kansas City, Missouri on business a few weeks ago, and I was driving down, down the street, and I saw um, a group of young black boys, teenagers, gardening. And I kept driving, and, and I saw um, a sign that said it was a community garden. So, of course, I'm inquisitive. I'm like, what's happening here? So I pulled over, and um, a couple of elders met me at the front, and they introduced themselves, and there's a couple of ladies who have this program for them. But um, the point that I want to get to is that I was speaking to one of the elders, and what she said to me is that um, when she was in school in the South, in Mississippi, it was illegal for black people to get an education past the ninth grade. Um, during that time, and she's, in, she's um, in her 80s, and so during that time when she was in school, she made it to ninth grade, and then she had to go further up north. She, her family ended up in Missouri because in Missouri, black people had more opportunity or perceived to have more opportunity. And so she left the South in the ninth grade and went to Missouri where she took a college entry exam and scored so well on it that she was able to um, get scholarships to go to college in Missouri. And that started her educational, you know, um, background. Um, She said, in contrast, she worked in the school system for 50 years. And in contrast, Black boys are graduating from high school reading on a third grade level. And she's like, what is the, what happened? Why did it go from in the, I went from a segregated school. We had no supplies, no nothing. Um, I didn't even have a pencil to write with. There were 50 of us in the classroom bunched up in one, one room. And I was able to pass a college entry exam having only completed ninth grade. Whereas now black boys or black children, black boys specifically are um, graduating from high school and reading on a third grade level. And the commonality is that um, black black children are now being taught by people who are not black. Um, I think that's an important thing to talk about um, in this discussion when we talk about the history of, of what happened, because when we were introduced to segregation, um, we all know in hindsight, um, we de- we devolved um, economically, educationally, and the whole nine, right? Um, so yeah, that whole that whole discussion around um, the, the history of what happened and who pulled what out, who out of what school, and then how black children were then um, separated post segregation and uh, put on a track for you know um, uh, special needs and that sort of thing. Um, there's a deep history of that. You know, when I hear that deep history, especially the aspect of being labeled as disabled, I used to hear about that quite often. I grew up in the South. That wasn't necessarily my experience by the time I got to school. But as I listened to that, what quite often sometimes when we look at where we're at today, I think quite often that uh, we, in a sense, forget about, in a sense, recent history and what long-term effect it would have on a collective group. So we're always, in a sense, saying we got to do better or we got to do this or or this is happening without realizing that, in a sense, uh, sometimes our concepts about education come from those who were severely miseducated. And, of course, some people still say that's the case today, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with it, but we always kind of overlook how the previous generation miseducation leads to some of what we see today. Um, your thoughts, Casey, on um, that cut or anything that myself or Oshun had to say? Go ahead, Queen. Yeah, I agree with a lot of it. Um, my mom was born in 1945, and my dad was born in 1926. And uh, being raised by the two of them in, in the house was um, a history lesson from the age of two, and I remember having to come home to talk to my mom 
about some paper or some project I had to write on Dr. King, which, you know, led into the civil rights movement. And I remember my mother saying to me, because she was one of the last graduating segregated classes in Virginia Beach, um, and we know, uh, of course, my dad went to completely segregated schools um, just by virtue of the year he was born in. And my mother said something to me that has stuck with me since fourth grade. And she said that integration wasn't necessarily wrong. It was how integration happened and the fact that we bought into the idea that what they had was better than what we what we had in our own community. That we took the carrot, right? We took the perceived notion of being able to buy what we want, live where we want, go where we want, do what we want, and we completely and totally sold the community that had embraced us and had prepared us for an illusion. Mm-hmm. And I think about that often when we think about the fact that black folks make the least amount of money, but we're the largest consumer base. Um, the fact that we can't ever seem to get on the same page because we got to decide, well, whose name going to go first and who's going to be the leader. And if it's not my way, then it's not going to get done. And we have, systemically pass down generation after generation the idea that we together are not powerful enough to give our community what we need. And if we could get back to that thinking and that way of being, then I will begin to see some of these other things that they're so easily able to just present to us, they begin to dissipate, they begin to move away, and they will understand that they can't try anymore to dismantle us because we no longer give into it or give them the power to do so. This is on us. You will never hear me blame the white man because I understand who we are as a powerful people. For me to say that it's their fault means that I'm giving them more power than what it is that, you know, they deserve. So you'll never hear me say it's somebody else's fault. It's us. It is absolutely Mm -hmm. us because we will not recognize and walk in the full power and authority that we have as a people. We influence everything. We start Mm -hmm. everything. We maintain everything. We build everything. We're the reason something fails or succeeds, regardless if we put our hands to it, you know, or not. And the fact that we as a people cannot understand that and move past this individual ego and work together for a collective power, then we're always going to have these issues with our children, with our elderly, with our communities, because we won't get on the same page and use our power collectively because we're waiting for somebody else to tell us it's okay. So I would challenge some of those paradigms because I think some of those paradigms, as we said, we've bought into concepts about our children. Uh, We've also... I think unfairly bought into concepts about our ancestors that um, that are not necessarily the case. Um, like for example, we are not the biggest consumers in this in this country. That's um, just throwing it out. That is a falsehood. Um, Percentage these- wise, not numbers wise, not numbers wise, because of course we're still a minority. So no, I'm not talking about, about no, I'm talking about I'm talking about mm-hmm. within I'm talking about within our demographic. So no, I'm not talking about obviously at thirteen percent we don't consume more than uh you know, people that are 
four and a half percent. I mean, four and a half times the population of us, but basically all groups consume about the same. Um, and, and it's just, it's just, that's just a real number. So that's a misnomer that gets thrown around that we are the biggest, biggest consumers. I mean, at the end of the day, we're in a capitalistic society that wants all of this, um, population consuming and all the groups consume equally the same. For example, just to show that you know I'm not saying this to you, um, so everybody always points out the 1.2 trillion or 1.3 trillion, I think we're at now that we spend. Um, Hispanics spend about 1.4, 1.5 trillion, but that's equitable to the fact that they're at 16% of the, um, you know, 16% of the population and white, white spend 11 or 13 trillion or whatever. Again, that's about four and a half times the number. So we're not the biggest consumers, just kind of throwing it out. We're at the top of the hour, so we're going to do the break and we come back and we can dialogue because there's nuance in not even buying into those concepts uh, in, in reference to how we will move forward. And, and basically, all I'm, all I'm pointing out, even by pushing this, having this pushback, is there's a lot of things we should remove as what the way that we look at our. So there's some things that we apply to our collective that if we improved on looking at them how they are, it also would improve how we move forward, even in this discussion. So just throwing it out as an example right before the break, uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show, where all I ask is that you think. Labor 25k a year Need a job plus another hustle Just to make it here Robbing Peter, Peter Paying Paul to pay the bills And just to stay a little Here to how my neighbors live The world makers feel like Keeping up with the Joneses But these 24 that we rolling on Don't feel the same when you homeless I know most of us ain't nothing But a few checks away from that moment When your boss man got a list name Getting laid off and you own it So now you all upset that Gotta take that flat screen set back You feel the plan so you get that You plan to fail so we set that So you might as well check your ego Then go see them people Office of Civil Rights opened an investigation in Bryan, 
along with hundreds of other school districts. If you can't justify what you're doing and it's having a harmful impact on one group more than others, you have to replace it with something else. But we don't actually know if those changes made a difference. Because the most recent data on the Office of Civil Rights website is from the 2015-2016 school year. The year after that, things started to change. The 51 to 50 vote to confirm Betsy DeVos. The vice president votes in the affirmative and the nomination is confirmed. In 2017, the Office of President Trump's new education secretary, Betsy DeVos, sent a memo to the staff at the Office of Civil Rights. This one super jargony line in the memo signaled a huge shift. OCR will only apply a systemic or class action approach where the individual complaint allegations themselves raise systemic or class-wide issues. Translation, no more looking for patterns in the data. If the office got a complaint like Marjorie Holman's, they would look for one thing, written or verbal proof that an individual teacher or administrator had punished Marjorie's son more harshly because he was black. We're not going to question that unless there's the smoking gun of intentional racism. That's what happened in Bryan, Texas. When Betsy DeVos took office, the investigation into Bryan schools was close to wrapping up. The final report concluded that black students were subject to disparate treatment when compared to white students engaged in the same or similar conduct. They had dozens of recommendations for the district. Revise their discipline code, hire mentors and social workers, extra training for teachers. DeVos's team scrapped the report and closed the investigation with no finding of wrongdoing and no suggestions for improvement. Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates. This morning's discussion question, what about the politics of education in black boys? The water boys revisited our special guest, Casey Benning, as well as Oshun Ojo. For the callers out there, you do have to press one if you're trying to get in on this morning's discussion with, discussion with us. I want to kind of bring in the politics, and here's something that stood out for me. Just want to kind of, I'm going to say a lot here, if you will, and um, Casey will go back to you, uh, if you will. But as I listened to that cut, and when I, when I heard that cut and thought about it, I was like, to a degree, something that I think collectively, to a degree, that we don't always connect how politics is closely related to our education. Because obviously when I say the politics of education, what happens a lot of times is, you know, when we get into political seasons, you know, politics is all you're here on the, on the TV and things of that nature. And a lot of the dialogue in our community is about whether we're going to vote or not. And then there's this, you know, this huge concept of vote or die and all these things are pressed upon, but to a degree, sometimes we're not necessarily understanding, always understanding, in my opinion, exactly how these things are connected. So I felt like that cut was a perfect example of how your education can be affected specifically by the politics, in a sense, of who's in office, if you if you caught that cut, because in that situation you had, in a sense, a, a, a particular administration saying, hey, here's these systemic things, or we're noticing because of this case, we're knowing these systemic things, and then another administration says, oh, it's not that, it's over with, but there are basically still black boys and black girls going through the Texas school system. Uh, 
while those things may still be happening and no one's looking at it. A lot of times we will not connect the politics to that aspect of education. Your thoughts on that, Casey? Well, it's pretty simple. I mean, the politics in and of itself is about setting policy. And so, of course, when you have uh, new policy leaders in place, if they don't agree with the previous policy maker, even if the policy is a good one, it then becomes changed because, like most things, people need to keep their jobs. So that means that they have to either create problems to solve, right? Because, you know, I tell people all the time, if you want to be a good business person, solve a problem. I don't care what your product is. I don't care what your service is. If you're not solving a problem, you're probably not going to stay in business for a long time unless you get to a place where you have now created something that can be consumed by the masses. Um, But even entertainment solves a problem of folks feeling good, wanting to relax, how fun. So politicians are the same way. Sometimes they create challenges and create problems to solve so that they can keep a job. Um, And so um, with uh, public education being wholly funded by tax dollars, by local government, by state and federal government, you're going to forever see changes happening based on the administration um, and the policymakers that are in place simply because their job is to create policy and they're, are, they're not always in the position of maintaining good policy because then that doesn't allow them to stand out and be on the forefront or create a problem or identify a challenge that they can say, hey, look at me, I solved for this. And so a lot of times, to what I said earlier, our children suffer for adults and their egos. Um, And instead of putting things in place that make good sense and that move all of our children forward, a lot of times you have policymakers dismantling things, throwing things out, changing things, simply because they now have to find an opportunity to solve for the problem either in a different way or create or sometimes identify brand new challenges to be able to say, look at what I did. No, it makes sense. Oshun, if you will, Queen, um, knowing as you've already kind of mentioned on the show that ultimately for you, it, it is always advocating about the idea of in a sense, getting my African-American children out of these school systems. I know that's what you highly advocate for. I'm in big support of it as well. But the reality is, even with that advocacy, the reality for a lot of our parents, or they're not in that situation, I know you understand that as well. And so for the parents that, in a sense, are left to be in the public school system, they're going to be swayed by these policies, just as Casey you know, just mentioned. Again, just highlighting the aspect, if you are a parent and you really are sincere about the education for your child, keep in mind there are amazing African-centered schools out there like Ahuru Academy and all these other charter schools, even charter schools that will basically, uh, in a sense, culturally add value in a way that the public school system you know, doesn't. Again, if you can take advantage of it, I encourage it. And again, I know that's what you advocate for solely for our people, and I respect it. However, speaking to that reality of being swayed by education, sometimes, I don't know how you feel about this, but sometimes we do lose sight of of what we could do politically if we're stuck in one of those public schools, just I'm kind of in a sense, knowing that you're in a sense, as I call you in a sense, I'll say this, your counterculture, but what are your thoughts about the importance of politics? Because sometimes I think we lose sight of it. I don't want to overstate it. And I don't, I don't want us just voting. Policy is what I'm concerned about. Your thoughts about that, Queen. 
Um, yeah, I think it's all necessary. I think that uh, we are at a juncture in our our um, evolution in this country where both of those things are equally necessary. We need to engage in this um, economy. We need to engage in this in the politics of this country. We need to actively engage in those things um, to to move forward. And we also need to have um, just as much focus on creating um, sovereign and autonomous spaces where we can thrive um, without without uh, the threat of the type of things that the system imposes on us. Um, to that point, uh, man, that clip said something about Betsy DeVos, and I know I, I was um, wanted to say some things about her, but um, I guess it's neither here nor there. But, yeah, I think that uh, we definitely need to, to equally engage. Um, the bulk of our children are in public schools. It, we would, it would be a grave disservice to just be like, oh, well, let's just have our own schools and move on. Everyone is not mm-hmm. able to do that for various reasons. It'll, it'll, it'll be a long road before we get to a point where uh, people engage. And even if we did have schools available, some people wouldn't want to want to engage in them. You just you just want to leave their kids behind because, you know, their parents have a different political process than you. It's for all black children, not just the ones who are whose parents are um, extremists, <laughs> so to say, like me. Um, but I do want I did want to point out that you guys are talking about politics, which is hugely important. Um, but I want to point out that. Politics is, is the sister said politics is about about um, policy, which is 100% correct. But what we lose sight of is that this poli- these policies are um, conduits by which to enforce hierarchies and the hierarchies that capitalism enforces. Right. So it's not just about what the person likes in their ego. The politics are about enforcing the hierarchy that this country was built on um, for capitalistic gain. And so, um, you know, we have to we, – we can't lose sight of that. We have to really um, think about the end result. Um, 99.99% of the time, the policies that are, in, that are, um, in, that are put into this country, um, especially regarding education, are – it all boils down to capitalism. Um, it boils down to being able to make sure that um, systematic white um, – so, uh- no, I, re- I respect the thought, um, you know, because I think there is some absolutely some reality when we understand how business really, in a sense, drive education, where, whether it's at the college level, even at the high school level, to a degree, a lot of what we may learn or how education has changed is often, in a sense, led by business. I would I always mention, while in the system, it behooves us and our community to pay attention to those transitions and ensure that if you are going to go through the public school system or be educated, in a sense, in the colleges for those who choose to do that, then I always think it is one of the things that we can do while within this system, if you will, is make sure we're paying attention to what business is bringing to education and, and encourage our children to go into those areas. Again, you know, not to take a child who shouldn't go into an area and put them in an area, but to a degree. Sometimes I don't know that, again, if you're in a sense, if you want to call it this, stuck in the public school system, I don't know that we're always advocating for our children to go into the 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 the, the education and industries where the system is pushing towards that capitalism, as you say. We are up against the break. I got a caller that wants to get in coming out of the break. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Method Dialogue Talk Show, where all I ask is that you think.
Are you trying to figure out your next income stream? Maybe get into cryptocurrency, real estate, or maybe even start your own business. If so, contact the KG Hire Company to receive a professional consultation or strategy session to provide you the advice you need to get a jump start on your new venture. If it's a new business, there's nothing like having a business consultant review your finances, strategy, or marketing. If it's real estate, the KG Hire Company specializes in evaluating deals for profitability and securing special financing for creative real estate acquisitions. If it's cryptocurrency, then look no further than the KG Hire Company to master the components of blockchain technology and investing into cryptocurrency serving atlanta since 2016 the kg hire company is an industry leader in customer experience and getting your money's worth contact them at kghire.com or 833-544-9288 again that's 833-544-9288 now you recently um, was in Atlanta. You ran into the Water Boys. Yeah. And you feel like all the celebrities and wealthy athletes and people who were in Atlanta should have been got them off the street. Yeah. Uh, you talking about billions of dollars in one city, one area? Some of the richest celebrities we known in history are, are in Atlanta, and to see. On all sides of Atlanta, homie, that they don't have no program for these kids. Because they ain't selling water. Let's just get that straight. They ain't selling water. Nigga, they standing out there begging. They standing out there plotting for a robbery. They standing out there plotting for a, a purse snatching. They out there waiting on a murder. And everybody's riding by. Locking their doors. So now they've gotten to the point where they're starting to resent. Right? We looking at it like, oh, man, it, these little niggas is aggressive. They're aggressive to the Bentleys. They're aggressive to the Rolls Royces. Because in their mind, man, how can y'all pass by their kids so they can't process this? They just know they're coming from some conditions, and they buy Lennox Mall. So they're in Buckhead. So they're everywhere, homie. And y'all passing by, maybe handing out $5, and there's 10 of them, so they circling the car. They're starting to resent y'all. Sooner or later, they're going to start robbing. They're going to start taking. Y'all ain't going to create nothing. Man, you niggas go to the strip club and throw $250,000 in the air. $50,000 to take 200 kids off the streets. $50,000 would take 200 kids off the streets and start a business. Horticulture, landscaping, pressure washing, car washing, detail, home building. Uh, man, there go your workforce right there. Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates. This morning's discussion question, what about the politics of education in black boys Subtitle, Water Boys Revisited, as you just hear Charleston White, for those who are familiar with him, give his perspective coming through visiting Atlanta and what he thought about the Water Boys. We are fortunate enough to have on uh, one of the founders of Helping Empower Youth, Casey Benning, her and Mark K.D. Boyd. They are directly involved with helping move some of those boys in the manner that Charleston White just talked about, getting them, in a sense, off the street and starting businesses. Uh, we highlight 
first hour, if you're just now tuning in, that they have the boys they've been able to help. They've actually started their own water bottle company and actually service businesses the way that any other business would. So pretty impressive on the work that you've done. We actually got a caller, so let's get to the caller. I'm pretty sure it'll be about some of what we've been discussing prior to bringing up the water boys. We'll go into them after we get to the caller stop. Area code 571, last 3237. Give us your name, where you're calling from, and your three cents on this morning's discussion. Hey, uh, Brother Montoya, this is Emil coming from the D.C. area. How you doing, brother? Hey, good to hear from you, Emil. What you got for us, King? Man, it's been a minute, but uh, this, this, this show, first of all, Queen, uh, bless both of you for uh, standing up for our boys, standing up for our people. Uh, whether you go the route of entrepreneurship, whether you go the route of just taking them out of the system, both of y'all are doing something amazing, and I just commend you and thank you for uh, standing up in the gap. Uh, we gotta we got to remember that we're the boogeyman, and one of the biggest problems that we face in America is we keep deluding ourselves as black Americans that somehow if we do something right, we will be accepted. We're the boogeyman. We have been from day one. Uh, the 1619 Project made that very clear. You can go beyond that, go back to the 1500s. The boogeyman has been here, and each time the political season ramps up, they use us as the scapegoat for all the social policies they want to enact that they were going to enact either with or without us. But they put all of that on us, so whether it's uh, the water boy, uh, you know, young men who are trying to make a dollar on um, on the corner or whether it's mass incarceration, it doesn't matter. NBA, NFL athletes acting out, out of, outside the norms, it doesn't matter. We're always the boogeyman. And because of that, they can put all those social policies in place by demonizing us every single political season. We know it happens day to day. We heard the stats in the clips about how from kindergarten, from very young ages, teachers are socialized into seeing black children as demons, as boogeyman, as boogeyman in training, as boogeyman, miniature boogeyman. It never stops. But when it comes to politics and policies, the sister said it beautifully. She said, never forget that the reason why these policies are in place is to enforce a system of unfair uh, resource allocation. They call that capitalism. But that resource allocation process is undergirded by black bodies being incarcerated and treated as the villains in any story America writes about itself. So uh, we got to start recognizing that we have to create our own narrative. We have to create our own story about ourselves that has to be stronger than the constant inundation of that boogeyman narrative that tells us and tells our nation that we're the cause of all ills. Now, I love the thoughts, and I will just reiterate, if I could, that how, you know, for anybody out there listening and for those who will listen later, uh, that, that ultimately it is, it, it, it matters very much that we don't accept the boogeyman version of ourselves, and that's some of the dialogue, and that's some, that's some of where we get lost. Now the question becomes, as we navigate, how do we navigate? And I think uh, the work that Casey is doing, and now she's actually moving into public service because at the end of the day, uh, as we say, if we say we're going to be engaged in politics, 
we got to play the game that's available. I like to tell, just highlight that because in playing that game, then we may, in my opinion, then we may be able to reach some of the autonomy that we talk about and shoot for. I think sometimes people, in my opinion, just throwing it out here, and I would love to hear your thoughts, Emil, um, in response before I let you go. But I think sometimes we talk about autonomy prematurely from the standpoint of not realizing what steps we have that we will really need to take within the system to get there. I think sometimes we skip over it and sometimes we don't see the action we need because we haven't taken the actions within the system to eventually bridge the gap to some of that. Um, obviously, like you said, and I agree with you, the autonomous messaging, that's where it all starts. We're, we're receiving the message too that we are boogeyman, the boogeyman. So if we could educate our children, properly educate them and not miseducate them into believing that we're the boogeyman, that's where it starts. Because once we no longer believe that, then I think some of the things you're talking about will have us play correctly to move to the autonomy that we're talking about. Your thoughts real quick, King, before I get the Queen's thoughts on your, on your comments. Uh, no problem. Uh, I agree. And, you know, it's a multi-pronged effort. So, you know, over the last 70 years that this civil rights movement being a forefront of black America's mindset, we have to remember that uh, we're not in a country that where we need a single leader of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and a, a Philip Randolph. We don't need a single leader anymore. We have people like exactly. the queen, like myself, like you, where we can start to distribute this effort. So it shouldn't Absolutely. be that we have one effort to get us out of anything. Some of us need to run for school board. Some of us need to run for county commissioner. Some of us need to run for comptroller. Some of us need to start our own schools and school districts. We need competition of our ideas where the people who are kicking their kids out of schools are making their schools so attractive and putting their kids in cultural community centers that are so attractive that the public school system has to respond to that by increasing how it does and how it improves, how it interacts with black exactly. kids. Because those black kids represent tax money that should be pulled out and there is going to be a policy that comes along, whether or not we like it, uh, where school choice is going to be more and more important. And if these black schools are pulling kids out and those schools aren't able to keep up, then more power to the black schools who are pulling those kids out of the public school system and the public school system not responding. we got to do all of it. It has to be all-encompassing. Exactly. And we have enough black people in America who are capable of doing their thing at a high enough level that Absolutely. they don't need to be galvanized by a single leader anymore. What we need to do is make them conscious and make them concerned about their community such that whatever they're doing, they include more of our community in their engagement. So if this is running a business, how do you use that business to bring a few more young kids, interns from college? If you're running a school, are you bringing along teachers from the HBCUs to make sure that your school is populated with kids uh, with new teachers who are coming up through uh, black, black empowered uh, uh, colleges and universities. Are we using all of the tools? If you are running for school board, are you exposing kids who want to be in the political arena and showing them what it takes and how to live their lives such that they can be viable candidates in 10, 15 years? We got to do all of it. And every single endeavor we take, we bring a couple young people with us, a couple of interns, a Absolutely. couple of protégés, a couple of students, and pretty soon we can have world, uh, change, uh, significant effect 
that changes how this nation sees us and how we see ourselves. We can't be looking for one savior, one leader, or or even a national figure. We got to stop that, and we got to start thinking about what is in my sphere that I can control, and how do I make sure that my community is blessed by the effort I'm putting into it. I love it. Perfect. I love how you keep saying, and I agree, do it all. And, and I'm, I'm highlighting that because we, we, we so often battle over which way is better when we are, as you said, we are capable. Get in your hemisphere, do it all, and we can. If we do it all, it will collectively take us where we want, whereas people think if we're not all moving in the same direction, we won't collectively get there. We're spending time battling over which way to do it and doing nothing when we actually are capable of doing it all. So I love that thought. Um, Casey, I know we only got you for a couple of more minutes, if you will, Queen. Any thoughts about um, what Emil said? And if you will, um, absolutely touch bases on exactly what you're doing with the water boys and you running for district um, seven because a third of my listeners are in Atlanta. So make sure you let them know how they can vote for someone who's been in these streets for real. I can vouch for you going out there with you with the water boys um, last summer when I had availability. And so I've stayed connected with the work that you're doing. But if you will, Queen, um, we got about three minutes to get it all off and we'll let you go. Cause I know as a, as a, now that you are running for office, you don't have as much time as you used to. So I respect you and thank you for giving me the extra time. So go ahead, queen, get it all off. Thank you for being with us. Sure. I agree a lot with what um, the gentleman um, shared and it is true that in order for us to see the change that we want um, in the lives of our people, um, we have to infiltrate every single one of these uh, levels. Uh, and industries and entities and organizations, um, there's very few things that we may be able to accomplish always on the outside. And, um, you know, for me, it's about making sure that people who first have a priority to uh, their community um, show up in these spaces and are able to elevate those conversations and those priorities so that as we do develop some of that competition that he talked about, which is absolutely necessary, there are people in position and in place to help make that a bit easier for them to be able to do. Um, For me, you know, I get the question asked all the time, well, you know, why run? And, you know, Montoya, you know, I'm quick to call people out, and I'll call people out by name um, because you're going to be accountable for your decisions. You're going to be accountable for the statements that you make when it comes to uh, these young people, to these black boys. Um, and just to kind of pull back from that clip that you placed um, with the guy talking, um, I ignore those kind of people because uh, I don't hear any reports of him giving that, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars he was talking about um, to any organizations to actually do the work. And so for me, that's a lot of what we see and a lot of what we um, experience. So people have a lot of ideas of what should happen. Um, and he was wrong in a lot of his assertions. For the majority of these young men, that's number one. Uh, but the second part of it is uh, we got to start putting our money where our mouth is, and that's just not fiscal resources. That's our time. That's our commitment. That is the words that we choose to use when we speak into these young people, when we speak over them, when we speak about them. That's about making sure that we're connecting the dots for folks, that they are in places where uh, uh, people are going to speak highly of them. And so we have a lot more work to do when it comes to that because um, a lot of this is unnecessary. And so for me, it really is about getting in a position where we are able to um, help folks and 
do what we can to help make the work that has to happen a bit easier. Um, and the last thing that I'll share is that we also have to have people in these positions of influence, uh, power, if you will, and authority that are also on the ground doing the work. Um, there are a lot of folks that sit on the school board that I am personal friends with that are highly intelligent, very wise, passionate about children. But there's also a lot of folks on the board who have not had any recent real-time experience, engagement, or interaction with children who are making decisions strictly off of what they have read and not what they've experienced. And we have to stop putting people in positions to have power, authority, and influence decisions that do not have a very real um, experience of how those policy decisions are going to impact young people or impact any constituent at all. And so in order for us to really turn this tide of our public school system in Atlanta, we've got to have folks on the board that are still doing the work. You know, school board members are part-time. You still, you still have to do something else, right? And so we need folks who are still doing the work. You don't have to be a teacher. You don't have to have a nonprofit organization like me. But are you volunteering somewhere on a regular basis? Are you influencing the work that is happening with young people, even outside of schools, on a regular basis? And if you're not doing that, you're going to be a little bit detached that the only experience that you have of young people are your own children. And so I want to be able to bring that perspective to the board in order for us to be able to ensure that we have a robust of idea, a robust uh, diversity of ideas when it comes to this policy making. So it is District 7. It's citywide for those who are in Atlanta. Um, Atlanta is a very magical place. I don't care where you live. You know somebody in Atlanta. So, you know, definitely share the information with them. And, you know, thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of this conversation today. No, absolutely. Thank you for your time, Queen. We are up against the break. We come back. Oshun, I definitely need you to hold me down because, again, I have to respect her political aspirations and let her get to canvassing from what I understand. So thank you, Queen, for being with us. We'll be right back. This morning's discussion question, what about the politics of education in black boys, water boys revisited? All I ask is that you think. LNG Technology Services, we are your industry leader in aircraft and heavy equipment repair services. In commercial business for over 15 years, LNG technicians have over 150 years of equipment-specific knowledge and are known industry-wide for returning worn-out, broken, and overused ground support equipment back to the user in working better than new conditions. For a service job done right at a value unparalleled in the industry, contact LNG Technology Services at 478 781 4860. Again, for a service job done right, that number is 478-781-4860. LNG Technologies is a Mental Dialogue Gold member and proud sponsor of the Mental Dialogue community. I went one time, I seen it. Man, I see how the people in Rolls Royce, they might throw 20 out there and get on back, get up. And then I see how they acting. Man, the little nigga might be looking to snatch a purse. <clears throat> So we all scared of each other. So we scared of our children. Children are the corn. So I went this last time, homie, and I was with some celebrities. And, and we was by Lennox Mall. I said, golly, boy, they way out here by Lennox Mall. And, man, I, I, I had seen where they had circled. I, I saw the car that they went viral that they circled. They all got it. I saw. I was there. I saw that, right? So when I come through, man, stop in the middle of the street. Don't know. Man, stop the car. Man, I let the window down. Say, nigga, y'all, come real. She'd come through the door. You can tell which one might rob. Here, nigga, where you potting at? Man, I'm here by myself. I don't fuck with no bunch of niggas. 
Say, where's y'all come over here? Say, nigga, matter of fact, give me, put your phone number, my number. Call me, little homie. What's your number? What's your number, homie? Man, give me your phone number, homie. Man, this fucked up. So, shit, nigga, uh, I'm going to go put together something. So, I got one I call every week. I send him some money every week. Here, man, here go here go $100, nigga. Here go give 50 to your mama. You went work today? Nah, here go 100 then. Just hold off till I get there, my nigga. Get you about five or six niggas, nigga. I'm going to buy y'all some lawnmower, some weed, some trash bag, some glove. And, nigga, y'all start y'all a lawn crush service. Mm. And then from there, nigga, I'll show you how to get a pressure wash. Where you can start pressure washing the gum at the gas station, homie, because it's an environmental hazard. New game, my nigga. I'm going to show you some new game. Let me talk to your mama. She right here listening. Hey, mama, I'm sorry to be cussing like this, girl. But, I, yeah, it's about making the connection, homie. And ain't nobody trying to connect. They pushing them little niggas off and driving by. So them little niggas resenting that shit. Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates. What about the politics of education in black boys? The Water Boys revisited. We were fortunate enough to have on special guest Casey Benning. She's running for District 7 School Board, and she is one of the founders of Helping Empower Youth. And they are particularly associated with this water board situation that has had made national news. You heard Charleston White mention he saw the, the situation that went viral in reference to the boy surrounding a car. And for those who don't know Charleston White, he is an activist out of Texas and here came through a couple of times visiting and he says he wants to start something here. Uh, ideally, I would have loved to have Casey kept her on for her to hear that part. Uh, if anybody out there can make the connection between him, if he's sincerely wanting to invest and help with these boys, I would encourage that he send that money to Helping Empower Youth. Uh, she didn't give out um, their nonprofit information, but just look up Helping Empower Youth and you will be able to find their information if you want to give because that is an organization that we absolutely support as part of the Mental Dialogue Community Club. And again, I would have loved for her to hear that, in a sense, Charleston, although it sounds like he's talking a lot of junk, he's about that action. So I would have loved for Casey to have caught that part. Oh, sure, I know you were t- we were talking about, uh, you know, knowing that, that experience doesn't, again, just happen in Atlanta. It just got some notoriety. But we have a lot of boys, in a sense, who are thrust into these in a sense, if you will, precarious situations where they're trying to make ends meet, not only for themselves sometimes, but for their families. When we did this show a a year ago, we were getting into very intimate conversations, and a lot of times people are shocked to find out what these boys' life experiences truly are. And the other part that I do agree with Charleston White on is the idea of the resentment that they sometimes feel when people are dismissive of their hustle, if you want, if you will. Um, your thoughts on hearing that cut, Queen? We just again thank you for rocking with me and getting me through this last half hour. Appreciate you for being with us, Queen. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm I'm more on on the same vein with you uh, regarding Charleston White. Um, what he said actually immediately spoke to me. I know, if it, you know, there are rules and exceptions, right? So um, I don't think that he was implying by any means that all of these, this, that this applied to every single last one of the, the people who were out there, that they were criminal-minded or that sort of thing. I think people are desperate. They do desperate things. That, that happens in children as well. Um, when you talk about what people are surprised about, what children have to do to survive, I dated a guy um, in my 20s who started hustling when he was nine years old and took care of his family from the age of nine father passed away his father was a, was a provider and um 
he yeah, so he was uh, washing cars and selling things on the street and things like that. And this is, you know, people think that that's, you know, something, quote, unquote, third world. It happens right here. And um, these children also, I think that um, black people are so consumed, um, especially when you're poor. It's not, and I'm not implying that poor people don't love their children. Um, <clears throat> what I am implying is that being in um, a system of capitalism where you're at the bottom and everyday, everyday living is stressful, um, children are often not prioritized. Um, and so absolutely, there's a, an African um, saying, uh, the child who is not embraced by the village will burn it down to fill its warmth. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we have to really um, think about where these boys are coming from and how desperate they are to eat. Um, not that they are uh, inherently criminal-minded. Um, and absolutely, people are children are going are going to resent people who are um, living a just a minute, baby. I'm on the on the call. Um, who are um, uh, who have done exceptionally well in the system of capitalism and are at the top and won't share the wealth. And I think to that point, we really have to also um, talk about. Uh, a lack of cultural expectation of reinvesting in our communities. It has to be. So when people say, oh, well, I don't see you investing in this money or, you know, that person isn't obligated to do anything. I think they are. I think every person is obligated to reinvest into, into the black, the black community. Um, also, I want to speak to the fact that we, we talked about um, the fact that we need to have, that we need to infiltrate like all these different sects of society in order to be successful. And that brother who called them was completely on point. Um, absolutely, yes, we need that, that healthy competition. We need to be hitting them every any way we can. Um, and to that point, we also need all types of people, right? We don't just need mm-hmm. the educators. We don't just need the people who are – we need street wise people. We need all of that. We need the Charleston Whites. Uh, brother, holler at me. Um, you can speak to uh, – uh, 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 you can speak to um, and meet a certain child on a level that I cannot, and I really appreciate that. Um, and in my experience, um, people who are like that, who are people who are in the hood, are invested in the hood. People who live in the streets are invested into the streets. They're invested in, in um, you know, their community doing well. Um, and so, in my experience, people like that are the people who are the grassroots, you know, on the ground organizers. It, it, it inevitably happens. Um, lastly, I wanted to point out that we talked about how um, we have to re-educate our children and point them in a direction that is. Um, uh, you know, suitable uh, for where we, what, the way that we want to end up. Um, but I do want to point out that to me, it seems like there is some type of paradigm shift um, happening in the world. The children that I talk to now are highly conscious. Um, these kids know we're in the age of information. Um, they are more aware than ever. And we talk about we have to breed the boogeyman out and not believe these things about ourselves. I think that that largely is um, a condition of people who are my age or older. Um, these children are not buying that, and it's even more powerful that they have that spark. Um, all they need, you know, is someone to kind of um, uh, uh, stand the flames, uh, so to speak. In conclusion, I just want to say that um, I trust black people. I trust that black people can manifest what we need to manifest. I trust that we can manage our own affairs. I trust that we can um, thrive and survive. I trust that we can build our own. We can infiltrate and do whatever we need to do. Um, these kind of discussions are are the conduit for to make that happen. No, absolutely. And, um, you know, speaking to the millennials uh, to a degree, um, because they, in a sense, um, did I lose your queen? 
I think I may have lost her for a second. Hopefully she gets back in. But um, but yeah, but just to speak to what Oshun was saying, yeah, she's back. But to see to speak to what you were saying, Oshun, the um, the millennials to a degree, they the the whole entire culture, just like millennials in general, like you know, obviously speaking of our black children, if you will, but the entire generation, they have kind of what comes from the top to the bottom, the way that like you said that our generation accepted it to a degree. And so I'm not surprised, because again, I work with these kids as well, but I'm not surprised that you are finding in a sense a subculture that are that are counteracting counteracting in a sense the things that we may have kind of accepted hook, line and sinker. Uh, you know, if you will, like even the idea, we are obviously pushing back. And that's what we do with mental dialogue. We have complete dialogues. And obviously I hate that, you know, Casey's not here, but he's even the idea of mentioning, here's a concept that I would love to share. Uh, just And it's kind of off topic just a little bit, but it's, a, it's it speaks to what you're talking about, accepting these concepts to where uh, more, more of us can say exactly what you said. I trust black people to do this because I absolutely do. Because the reality is, if you have this concept that you cannot trust, then you haven't seen enough of what I've seen. Because I see everything that you say we don't do or should be doing or that we're not doing. I surround myself with people who are doing those very things. So you couldn't, you could never tell me these bad things about us when I'm experiencing them live in 3D. Uh, for example, going back to history, even uh, just the idea of mentioning that. Uh, even after integration to a degree that the concept was lost on us that in a sense the white man's ice was colder like that's something that we say now but if you really go study the time period and get deep into the history that was not the concept at all as far as um, what happened in, in a sense to our businesses if you will and even our schools so you really had basically a culture that that was in a sense we know this disregarded right we were disregarded in all assets especially in the south with the obvious Jim Crow uh, but you know segregation still happened financially with housing and, and and where you could spend your money even in outside of the south but if you think about what really happened it was never a concept that our ancestors ever thought the white man's ice is cold like that's not the reality of the mindset what happened once integration took place they'll say oh we can go get that money too and so in going to get that money then you have the power players setting up um this setting up those industries to now push out the competition if if that makes sense so even in being in business if 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 you can now be undercut by the bigger business, even though you may have been thriving within the community as a business owner at one point, if you go undercut that business, that ends up being business one-on-one. And that's not people saying, oh, now that I can do this, I'm not going to no longer go to this business I had a relationship with. I'm going to go here. It was people collectively not having a lot of funds and so it's very easy to market if you can undergird and undercut this person prices by a great deal you don't have a lot of money that's a common sense decision that's not thinking somebody else's culture is better than mine your thoughts on that queen because a lot of times we say that and it's very unfair to our ancestors yeah it reminds me of that whole um i am not my ancestors trope that people say on the internet right <laughs> <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. You're not because you ain't gangster like that. 
Um, I agree wholly. I think that it goes back to what you were saying about how we buy into uh, these these things that we keep hearing about ourselves over and over and over again. People accept them as facts. Uh, one thing that, that you that you know about me that most people know about me is that like I love facts. I don't care if it if it reinforces my ideal or if it completely dispro- disproves my ideology. I want to know the truth about something, right? And so I spend a lot of time looking into myths that we have applied to ourselves, including the whole we're the biggest consumer myth and things like that. Um, so I think that you're right. It is a myth that we ever thought that uh, – I mean, some of us did. And there, there is, you know, again, exceptions and rules. I think some of, some of us did um, maybe come to believe that something was better. But I think you're absolutely right in saying that um, – Really, what it was is a natural conclusion of um, you, uh, of the situation that we were in. It was a, it was a natural conclusion. What else could have happened uh, given the circumstance? No, absolutely. Let's go to one last break and let's keep evolving on that concept because again, I like sharing these type of things because I think this is the nuance of dialogue and information that needs to get out there so that we can stop perpetuating these myths when you really look at the reality of the moment. Um, so we'll be right back. This morning's discussion question, what about the politics of education and black boys? If I ask, is that you think? Hey, where did you get that hat and t-shirt? I like that. Oh, I got this at moneymotivation.com. It's fresh, right? Yes. And I love the message on it too. You are the hustle, huh? That's what the shirt says. I am the hustle. They embody the entrepreneurial spirit. And what I like the most, it's more than a brand. It's a lifestyle for those who want to put in the work and expect to have the final things in life. I also follow them on Instagram. Check this post out. If you believe money is the root of all evil, you're using it wrong? Or how about this one? Excuses made $0 an hour. I like those. What's their IG? At moneymotivation.co. But do they have any ladies gear? Yes, you're going to love the clothing line they got for the ladies. Matter of fact, pull up their website, moneymotivation.com, and I'm going to get you a few things so we can both look like money. Everywhere I go, go. And everywhere I be, be. I don't even talk, talk. They still go with me. Because I look like money. Smell like money. Talk like money. Have you heard about that podcast, Mental Dialogue? It's so good, it should be illegal. But if you miss the live show every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Blog Talk Radio, be sure to catch replays on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and all other streaming platforms. We are the return of Intelligent Radio, and we are the best in the world at having hard conversations on race, sex, gender, and business in the African-American community. And remember, all I ask is that you think. If you have a product or service you would like to get out to the smartest audience in all of radio, please contact me directly, 404-604-9477. Contact us also on social media, Instagram, mental underscore dialogue, or on Facebook at mental dialogue, DM me, and we'd be glad to send you our amazing advertising packages to get your information out. Also, thank you to all the individuals who are members in and outside of Atlanta. If you're outside of Atlanta, please go to mentaldialogue.com and become a supporter. 
If you're in Atlanta, become a member and enjoy some of our live events and meetups and where we do these these dope discussions. But ultimately, our vision is to create a nationwide virtual neighborhood where African Americans trade services, good and goods and ideas, and that happens all the time. Uh, literally, we have a mastermind group for those that want to join at the platinum and black level. We get into high level business uh, mentorship with our mastermind. So please call me and ask me any questions you have about the community club, but we do have a nationwide neighborhood where we touch and help one another. This morning's discussion question, what about the politics and education of black boys? I think Emil is trying to get back in, so I'm going to let that brother back in. Um, Area code 502, if you want to get in, make sure you press 1. We only got a few more minutes for people that if you want to get in, the number is 646-787-1691. You do have to press 1 to let us know you want to speak. Emil, were you trying to get back in, or did I just see it wrong? No, I, I, I did want to get back in, King. Thank you for bringing me back. Go ahead, King. Jump in. Yeah, jump in where you want to get where you fit in, brother. Yeah, so, um, you know, you've got people on uh, in this country, black people in this country, who haven't yet realized that they're the most powerful people on the planet. And I know we say that and we sort of hyperbole, but honestly, when you look at the trends and the music and the things that we bring to this world, we keep forgetting that we're being emulated. Sorry about that. And one of the challenges that we face is how do we galvanize that power? Well, the first thing is we just got to recognize it. And when we start doing things, the world – often tells us, gives us feedback that we're very good at what we do that we don't hear. So we got to get better at telling our own story to ourselves about the things that the world reflects in us. When we do that, we become more reflection. And that's something that I talk about ourselves in terms of how we're going to improve ourselves and how we're going to build ourselves up. Sometimes we just need that raw reflection from that, from the effect that we have to understand just how powerful we are and can be. No, I love the thought. I mean, it makes me think of something. I remember when I, because I'm, I'm, I love music, for example, big, 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 big time music fan. Um, I'm a hip hopper till I die, if you will. But I just remember in, in loving all types of genres of music, I just remember learning about the history of American music and to a degree, outside of some of the genres that have come around in the last 20 years, but prior to the last 20 years, for the most part, other countries understood that American music is black music because we originated rock and roll. We originated blues. We originated country. And so other people in other parts of the world understood that American music was black music, all genres. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know that as a kid, but because I love music, I found that history. And so I just kind of use that as an example of what you just said, how other people were recognizing in a sense that American music was, if you will, black music or African-American music, whichever you want to call it. And for most of our black kids, not knowing that, like I, like we, are the originators of uh, what is it? The um, what's the fast music? Elect, elect, I don't even know how to say it now, but we techno like that's that's we originated out of Detroit based on another Detroit style of music. So many forms of music were based off the foundation that our people led, and we don't even know that. That's just a, a small example of what you're talking about, Emil. Oshun, any, any of your thoughts about what our callers had to say? Yeah, I think uh, the caller's on point. Um, 
I'm I'm struggling to think of any genre of music that uh, black people didn't originate in this country. Um, and also, in the last twenty years, there's some new genres that you probably don't even know about. I'm talking about the kids are doing. Yeah, probably. That, are, that, that were not necessarily originated from American-based music. That's very I'm, twenty years is very minimal when you think about music. And, and you know, I'm thinking like K-pop, but that's. That's not even American. I'm just trying to be as accurate as possible, you know, knowing that yeah. there's some new forms that, in a sense, were originated by us, if you will. That's very new, very new. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's fitting, Montoya. You're going to have to um, end the end the segment with um, Most Deaf. Um, what's the name of that song where he says, Elvis Presley ain't got no soul. Bojangles is rock and roll. But, yeah, <laughs> um, we, yeah we set the precedent um, for everything. I think it's we're we're coming into that knowledge. Um, again, the internet has made it extremely clear that um, uh, you know this information is available to us everywhere. Um, um, but but yeah, I'm back. I'm sorry. Okay, no problem. No, I'm, okay, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah I, think, well. I think that. Um, yeah, it's not just with music. We set we set the precedent for everything um, on a global scale. We are really powerful people. I was thinking, talking to my son, um, he's 12, a couple of days ago, about uh, the history of patents in this country. And um, we came out of being an enslaved group of people and immediately became one of the wealthiest groups um, in this country. We became millionaires so often that they reinstated laws to block us from getting patents on um, on ideas. So um, if, imagine, and to circle back on this conversation that we're talking about, which is the education of black boys and education of black children, imagine giving um, a black child access to equal grounding, what we can do. We did all those things um, being oppressed uh, severely. So imagine what's going to be possible um, when we create spaces for our children where they are giving equal access to resources and, and um, opportunity. Yeah, well, the ultimate thing is, because well, like I said, we're talking specifically about education, and I still, you know, talking specifically about education and the mills on as well, um, is the idea of just, as you said, you took your son and showed him that. And so what happens is sometimes because of how we learn history as African Americans in the public school system, to a degree, we avoid history to a degree, right? It's not a subject that is a favorite because of how we're going to get it or taught it in the public school system. You know, we'll do the same 12 figures every February, but other than that, we just, for the most part, hear that we were enslaved. And, you know, see that see that meme that says, you know, our history started before being, you know, before enslavement, if you will, which is true. Um, but but even in America, there's so much that we did, and I say that to to highlight that this is why you know people like yourself or should push for the African Center Education because at the end of the day, the the, the reason why every culture teaches it history its history is because of the subconscious power that it has, knowing that you came from something. If you know that you have once done something, then the idea that you can go do it in the future is already a given, and then you may take and build on that. But if you don't have a connection to the things that are our own greatness and the things that we've done and don't know this history, then you are really, in a sense, lost compared to others who know their history and culture. So history becomes more, very important as a part of that cultural education. And once you know that you can compete, then, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, I know that you have focused on STEM. I'm a big believer. 
pushing steam because at the end of the day, here's a reality. Here's a reality about America. The 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 structure of this country is is falling down. The whole country knows it, and so we could actually infiltrate in that area. And anytime there's you solve a problem, like Casey said earlier in the show, that's where the money's at. Since this is the game we must play, let's jump in because we've been engineers. We designed the Washington D.C. We designed these buildings. We've done these things, and our kids just don't know. We shouldn't have a, 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 a great movie called Hidden Figures. We know why it's Hidden Figures, but it shouldn't be hidden to us. So I got about a minute, Oshun, if there's any public information you want to get out. Thank you for being with me, Queen. Please get it out right now. Again, appreciate you. Great show, Queen. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I don't really have anything to put out this time. I'm not, I'm, our, my coding class is on hold due to COVID and um, I don't have a lot going on right now as far as um, um, activities in the community. So um, well, next, you, next you, go around. Can they follow, uh, follow you on IG? I know you're on IG, so give me your IG at least. I am. I'm on IG as um, House of Oyin. It's H-O-U-S-E-O-F-O-Y-I-N, all one word. All right. See y'all next Saturday. Make sure y'all share this show. If you heard something that you enjoy, please share this with others. All I ask is that you think. Thank you, Emil. Great, great callings.